Today we come to the conclusion of our entire summer series on David, a man after God's own heart. We've journeyed with David all of these weeks, seeing all these various episodes of his life, beginning with him as a young, ruddy shepherd boy out in the field, being brought in and being anointed as the future king of Israel. We've seen him in episodes of great courage and faith and trusting And we've also seen episodes of David failing quite miserably, falling into temptation. It's been a little bit of a roller coaster ride with David. His life was a little bit of a mess, including last week when we saw his son Absalom, the fruit of David's bad fathering. We saw Absalom come and try to usurp David's authority. Well, this week we come to the last episode in his life, at least according to the 2 Samuel narrative. And it's David buying the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. It seems like a strange way to end the story. And it might even seem a little bit strange for us to be focusing on something like this on August 19. I got an email yesterday from somebody in the congregation saying, Pastor, when are we going to go to the New Testament? Can we do something a little lighter, a little more encouraging? I hear you. And, you know, I'm kind of sorry, not sorry, but we're not doing that today. (laughs) We're going to go deep on this story of David and Arana the Jebusite. In fact, I want to take us over to Israel. We're going to do a little travel, look at the geography and even the topography. We're going to go deep into history and even theology. And I promise you, if you stick with me for some of this academic stuff at the beginning of the sermon, you will be encouraged, not necessarily with a like a light message, but you will be encouraged if we go deep here for a few minutes. Everybody on board with that? Well, let's go to Israel. Let's find out about this threshing floor. I want to show you this picture of ancient Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem in the time of David. Some of you have been to Israel. I've been to Israel. Whether you've been there or not, let's just go there visually. This is Jerusalem in the time of David. And I want to show you something quite interesting. You can't probably read this um, from where you're sitting, but that top little paragraph up there, it says Arana's threshing floor. It's got an arrow down to that hill north of Jerusalem. Can everybody see at least the hill north of Jerusalem? The paragraph to the left of that says that this mount, this hill, has a name. It's called Mount Moriah. Does anyone know what happened on Mount Moriah many years before this? I'll give you a hint. It had to do with Abraham and Isaac. This is the very mount that Abraham and Isaac walked up. Isaac with the wood on his back, ready, Abraham ready to sacrifice his own son before God provided a substitute, a ram in the thicket very same hill that Arana's threshing floor is on. I want you just to notice one more thing about this before we move on from this. Notice the topography. Notice how it's a bit higher. It's probably the highest place around Jerusalem. A threshing floor is simply a place where a farmer collects all the wheat he's harvested and then starts throwing it up in the air where the chaff can receive the wind, the breeze, and be removed from the kernel of wheat. Threshing floors were often in high places so that they could pick up the wind. It was that simple. But high places, as we'll see here in a moment, played a significant position in ancient Israel. So I want you just to keep this visual in your mind. You can take it off the screen for now as we move on because I want to tell you some more aspects of the story. Now you can picture where Arana's threshing floor 
was. Why did David buy the threshing floor of Arana? Let's look in the text to find out what was going on in David's life, what episode of his life he's currently in. If you don't have your Bible open, I encourage you to open it again. 2 Samuel 24. We'll begin with verse 10. We'll hear it again. Here's what it says. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I remember learning this story when I was younger in the NIV. And the NIV said David was conscience-stricken. The ESV says his heart struck him. David is having another one of these episodes in his life. He's having another moment where he realizes he has failed miserably. And he is in a moment of deep regret. Do you ever have those moments? Maybe you're falling asleep on your pillow at night and you think about that thing you said. Or that thing you did earlier that day and you just cringe. You can't believe you did it. I have that feeling sometimes. David is having one of these moments times a thousand. He's realized he's done something, in his words, very foolish. So what was it that he did? Did he fall into sexual temptation again like he did with Bathsheba? No, it was actually way worse. And the consequences were even worse. What did he do? It says in here he numbered the people. He numbered the people. He, he enlisted a, a census over the people of Israel. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal, does it? Does, shouldn't a king know how many people are in his kingdom? Yet it offended God deeply. Why? What's going on here? Why would doing a census be so terrible for David and make God so upset? We're going to see just how upset God was here in just a moment. Well, I read a number of commentaries on this this week, and there's, there's, there's generally different theories about why God was so upset, why David was in such regret after conducting this census. But the one that appeals to me the most is the fact that in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, it was considered very rude to count something that belongs to someone else. So if I went over to your house and I said, how many sheep do you have? Let me go count them. That would be very rude because that would be basically like me saying, these sheep belong to me. I know how many there are, therefore I have ownership over them. It would be very offensive if I went over to your house and counted your sheep. David has counted the people of Israel. You remember back in the original covenant, the original agreement that he had with God, God installed David as the shepherd king of Israel. A shepherd king, a shepherd is not somebody who owns the sheep. Somebody else owns the sheep and he hires a shepherd to steward, to take care of the sheep. In other words, the people of Israel didn't belong to David, they belonged to God. David was simply the steward as king. So for him to send out, it's an interesting story. You should go back and read the paragraphs preceding the story today. He says to his general Joab, he says, Joab, go count the people from Dan to Beersheba. Count all the people. And Joab says, oh, David, may there be a hundred times the number you think it might be. And David says, go count them. See, David gave him an out, just like in the story of Bathsheba, or Joab does here. 
And yet he, 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 he still um, tells them to go count the people. They come back with the number, and then David realizes what he's done. He's offended God. These aren't David's people to count their gods. So now David is in this place of deep, deep regret. He's just cringing at the mistake that he made. And he goes and he tries to set it right. He tries to do anything possible to make it right with God. He consults. I'm, I'm summarizing for you instead of reading all these details. He goes and he consults with his prophetic advisor named Gad. How would you like to have the name Gad in the Bible? Kind of sounds like God, but not quite Gad. So he goes and he talks to Gad. What should I do? Let's pick up the story now in verse um, 18. Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up. You see, can you picture the the topography now? Go up, find a high place. Go up, he says. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. David is in agony. He's cringing with his mistake. He consults with his prophetic advisor saying, what can I do? What should I do to make it right? I've offended God. And Gad says, go on up. Find yourself a hill, make an altar to the Lord, and make a sacrifice there. That will set things right with God. Now, here's something that's really interesting. We're going to go back to Israel in our minds now. In 1 Chronicles, the very same story is told. And it gives us more detail. It gives us more picture of what's going on in this story. And it tells us this amazing thing. I want you to picture this now. It tells us that when God is offended by David counting the people, he sends his angel of wrath, he sends his angel of death to come sweeping across the land towards Jerusalem to inflict God's wrath upon the people. In fact, I don't know if you noticed this. If you looked at your bulletin picture, I want you to look at this right now. If you were really paying attention to this picture and you sat down in the pew this morning, you probably felt a little uncomfortable if you realized what's going on here. Look closely. Do you see David there? He's the one on the right with the crown on his head. He's raising his arms in the air. He's trying to stop this angel. This isn't nice, loving angel coming to bless. Look what's in the angel's hand. It's a sword. This is God's instrument of wrath coming down. He's about to strike Jerusalem. It's like God said to David, you want to count the people? You want to count my people? I'll take some of them out. I brought them into the world. I can take them out. This is terrifying for us to think about. We don't normally think of God in these terms, but he unleashes his angel of wrath, and he's heading out over towards Jerusalem. And the first Chronicles account tells us this amazing thing. 1 Chronicles 21. It says the angel of wrath is sweeping down across the country heading towards Jerusalem and the angel stops. Where does the angel stop? It's depicted right here. Over the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. This is the picture that you see going on right here. And the angel looks down and he sees the sacrifice that's being conducted on the threshing floor by David and he puts his sword away and he relents, it says. So what's going on there? Now we've been to Israel, now we're going to go to seminary. What's going on there is something called propitiation. Raise of hands. Anyone know the word propitiation? Have you heard this word before? Maybe 3%. Okay, let's go to seminary. Propitiation is what happens here on the threshing floor. It basically just means the appeasement of God's wrath. 
a payment that's made in order to appease the wrath of God. God knows, David knows that he has sinned, he sinned greatly. We even learn in the Chronicles narrative that the people of Israel seem to be party to this sin in some way they want it to be counted. God's wrath is sweeping down across the nation, but propitiation is made, payment is made. David says, I need to buy this property. I'll pay any price to make this right. Propitiation takes place. God's angel of wrath, his instrument of wrath, relents because payment is made. An animal dies on the altar. That's the payment. That's propitiation. I have a brother-in-law who I admire greatly. He's a really good dad. His name is Simon. And Simon has a son, my nephew, named Emmett. And I love watching the way Simon parents Emmett. We go to the family cottage every summer, as I've mentioned, and I love it. There was one moment last summer, I've heard him say this a number of times, but there's one I'm picturing in my mind. Emmett and another cousin were out on paddle boards on the water, and there was some kind of conflict out there. I don't know what it was. They, someone stole the paddle board that the other one wanted or something like that, and there was crying, you know, and there was all this commotion, and Simon stood on the shore, and he called out to his son, Emmett, and he said, Emmett, make it right. Make it right, Emmett. And Emmett said, okay. And he like returned the paddleboard or whatever the problem was. I love hearing Simon say that. Make it right. This is what's going on in David's mind right now. I need to make this right. I have offended God. I counted what was not mine. This is a matter of pride in my heart. I need to make this right. So he goes and he gets the counsel of Gad and Gad says, go on up, get yourself a high place by the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. Put an altar there to the Lord. So David says, I'll do it. I'll make it right. I'll pay the price, propitiation. And it works. God's wrath is averted over the people of Israel. So that's an amazing thing. Thank you, Lord. Crisis averted. But does this episode of David's life just live in a vacuum on its own? No, there's more I want to show you. In 1 Chronicles 3, verse 1, Solomon is now king, David's son Solomon, and before David dies, David instructs Solomon to build something for the Lord. Solomon's temple is what we now call it. David says to his son, build for the Lord a house worthy of his name. Build a temple. And in 1 Chronicles 3, verse 1, Solomon is now king, and Solomon sets out to build a temple. And where will he build the temple to the Lord? Well, he's got some property now. His dad bought some property. Look at this picture. Now, Matthew, flip it back to the previous one. This is Jerusalem in the time of David. Now go to the next one. Jerusalem in the time of Solomon's temple. Solomon needed land to build a temple. He had some land. It was the highest place in Jerusalem. Those of you who've been there, you know where Solomon's temple is. That was built on the purchased land of Arana the Jebusite. Chronicles tells us not only did he pay 50 shekels for the threshing floor, he paid 600 shekels for the whole farm. And Solomon built the temple there. This should amaze us. God's perfect will was unfolding even in the midst of David's terrible mistake. That one little episode in David's life wasn't the end of the story. And for a thousand years, more sacrifices would be made on that very same spot, the spot that Abraham brought Isaac up and God provided a substitute, would be the very place where the temple would exist for many, many years. 
okay, thanks for going with me to Israel. Thanks for going deep on big theological terms and stuff like that. Let's talk now. What does this have to do with you and me? What are the principles? What are the takeaways as we walk out the doors of this sanctuary and go off into our lives? What does all this ancient stuff have to do with you and with me? Two big takeaways I want to give you. First one is this. You can't fail out of God's will. There's no mistake too big to disqualify you from the perfect unfolding will of God. He's sovereign. David must have thought he really messed things up big time. He totally messed up the whole story. He messed up the whole plan. He's God's anointed king. He'd been set over, over Israel, and he messed up so royally. His heart was stricken. And yet, look, he went and he scrambled and he bought some property, and it became the temple mount. You think your regret, your mistake, is going to thwart the will of God? There's so many times people come to us pastors and they say, I have these two job possibilities. Can you please pray that I'll choose God's will? Now, we love praying that with people. We'll pray that with you all day long. But sometimes I want to think, I want to say, who do you think you are? You think if you pick the wrong job, you're going to stop the will of the creator of the universe from unfolding in this world? I don't know, I don't know what regret you might have on your mind this morning. What mistake makes you cringe when you fall asleep on your pillow? Wish I hadn't done that. Holy Spirit, just reveal those to us right now. They're still causing us pain. It's still making us wince at the memory of them. Guess what? None of those mistakes fail you out of the the will of God. His better story is being written. His better story is being told. His better story is unfolding through human history. Even in the midst of our mistakes, the line at the end of the Joseph story where he says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used for good for the salvation of many. We might say in this story, what you screwed up, God will use for good and for the salvation of many. Think about the salvation of many on this hill, on this temple mount. It was a mistake that David made, and it became the very temple of God's people for God. You can't fail out of the will of God. That's takeaway number one, and I can say it so confidently because of takeaway number two. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. There would be another time in the same city, just outside the city walls once again, where there would be another sacrifice made, not on Mount Moriah, but just down the hill from there on another mount called Calvary, where propitiation would be made, a sacrifice would be made on the cross of Christ, 
Picture this now. You know that terrifying image of the angel of God's wrath sweeping across and about to inflict God's judgment on the people, but it's stopping over the threshing floor? That's actually what happened with the cross of Christ. God's perfect wrath, his righteous indignation for the sins of the whole world was coming down from heaven. And he said, God, God looked at all of us in our sin and what we deserve. And he said, I will make the payment I'll pay any price. And so God let the wrath of God fall upon God's self on his own son, on Jesus. All those people in Jerusalem on the other side of the threshing floor, they were spared. And that's our story. We're on this side of the cross and the wrath of God was extinguished there. And we're spared. We're spared. Because of the propitiation. Look what it says in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, does anyone here sin? Don't raise your hand. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. This is good news. We can't fail out of God's perfect will because God's perfect will included the cross. Where all of our failures, all of our sins went and they were dealt with. And the wrath of God was extinguished on that altar so that we are spared. Amen.